The views and content expressed on the following program are provided solely for informational and entertainment purposes. They do not constitute legal advice. A podcast is not a substitute for retaining a competent, licensed attorney to advise you on your specific legal situation. everybody welcome to the show it is time for break the business where we empower any creators and have some fun along the way i'm ryan carella and it is a pleasure to have you here this week and it is a pleasure to be joined by lauren hey lauren hey ryan how you doing doing very well producerette extraordinaire i love the episodes where i get to just talk directly to you the producer don't get me wrong i love the the coterie of co-hosts that we have coming in here like when we get zach or KDZ or JC or Elisa, Evan, all these people, we love them. But when I get just to talk I to you. I think we do it just for the fun of it. Yeah. Like, I like them all. I, I know. They're great. Every one of them. Amazing professional creators, industry professionals, cool people. But I love just when I get to talk to you, too. I enjoy this as well. Thanks. Here's the thing, though, and like I'm asking this legitimately, like me just wanting to genuinely know how you handle this as a producer because. When you're talking to me and we're doing the show and we're doing the banter and you are basically filling the shoes of both co-host and producer, you still have to be producer, right? So what happens like when you have to run the board on things? Like, for example, our guest coming up after the break is Tommy Stalknecht. He's the founder and CEO of Single Music. I'm excited to talk to him because he's going to talk about how to optimize your Shopify platform as an indie creator, do direct-to-consumer stuff. We love it. But, like, at some point, he's going to come in, right? He's going to come into the StreamYard room, and you have to, like, coach him up. I have to chat with him backstage and make sure he's all set up. Yeah, absolutely. How are you going to do that and talk to me? I'm just legit curious. How does that work? This is is one of those times when ADD comes in handy. Like, I'm actually (laughs) better at doing multiple things than doing one thing. So as long as there's, like, six things going on, I feel really comfortable. Oh, so that's actually your wheelhouse. When you just have one thing going on. You're, you're, I get, you get no, I'm waiting. I'm waiting for something else to happen. I'm like, there's got to be something else. There needs to be more. And when there's like chaos going on and like a hundred things needed and crisis solving, I'm like, ah. Well, <laughs> I'm definitely wired backward. I want you all to keep your eyes and ears out for this, viewers and listeners, because I'm gauging that about say the 20 minute mark of this show is when things are going to get real hectic for Lauren. Because that's when the guest pops in, when, when Tommy Stalk next going to be like, because he's just going to click the link and then just find himself in the middle of the show and be like, where am I? What am I doing? What's going on? And then Lauren has to coach him while talking to me. And we get to sort of put her to the test and see how you're going to handle this. Yeah. Yeah. I'm up for the challenge. Before we get into our stories this week, Lauren, I, I <laughs> wanted to tell you a little bit about what I've been up to over the past week and what has been occupying my life. And Do tell. Because this is the first week where I haven't been streaming video games on Twitch in a while. And a couple people are like, where's the baseball? Where's the baseball? I'm going to tell you where it is. I'm going to tell you where it is. Mm-hmm. I was, I've been ignoring my Xbox because I have gotten obsessed, obsessed with the Oculus. Do you know what this is, Lauren? The Oculus. I do not. Is this some kind of mask thing? It is VR. V. It it is. It is. You've left our world and have gone into another world. And I'll tell you, the other (laughs) world, so much better. That's always what I've been afraid of. You know, there's going to be people in rooms and uh, virtually hanging out with everybody else and giving up on our world. I'm telling you right now, the Ready Player One dystopian future that we're all afraid of, where we're all just like when VR becomes popular, we're all just going to be like sloths on the couch and no one's going to interact with the real world because the virtual world's 100 times better. I'm telling you, we're here. It's happened. Except I think that the virtual world isn't necessarily couch potatoes because you can put on that mask and be able to walk through rooms and be able to meet people and be able to do things uh, with that on. You can live in another world. You don't necessarily have to be a couch potato. Certainly not. Let me tell you, my muscles are sore from all the stuff I've done with this Oculus. Let let, let me tell you, okay? Okay. So I got this thing because our friend Josh, who's been on the Break the Business podcast before, um, we all know him, Josh we all Morales. Love Josh, yeah. He 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 works at uh, Facebook Reality Labs, which are the folks mm-hmm. that make the Oculus. 
And he's been on me for like a year about getting one of these. Like, dude, you have to get the Oculus. It's VR. It's amazing. It's the way of the future. And I've always been brushing him off. Bah, 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 you know, so I when can't... you point him out your birthday, Christmas. Yeah, you know? that too. Oh, no. I, I've been definitely <laughs> playing that move with him. Um, I've been shameless about, you know, I've got a birthday coming up, man. And he's like, just get it now. And... And but like as the prices have come down, where basically an Oculus costs as much as you know most consoles cost these days, and the tech has gotten great, where you don't need a separate computer to connect to; it's all one device. Oh, that's crazy. Um, and here's the thing, okay? For the people who are on the fence about the purchase here, here's what did it for me. As far as I'm concerned, the purchase of the Oculus, Lauren, has been a cost-neutral decision for me because at some point in my life. I was always going to buy a ping pong table. It, it, it is a line item in my future budget. I was always going to buy one of these things. Okay. And I'm telling you, because of how freaking perfectly realistic the Oculus ping pong game is, I don't need to buy a ping pong table because that ping pong app that they have is every bit the same as regular honest to God ping pong, except I can play ping pong with anybody in the world. Because That's my question. Device. Are they real people so you can actually play with somebody yeah. against somebody in, in a ping pong game yes. anywhere in the world? Anywhere in That's the world. That's really cool. And it is, I, I can't emphasize enough, it is so realistic. The physics are absolutely perfect. I, and, and yes, in terms of like how real all the worlds are, I mean, there, like there's a bowling game. I know you love bowling, Lauren. We grew up bowling. The bowling game, you're in like a real bowling alley. And if you had a big enough room in your house, you could actually walk all around this gigantic virtual bowling alley, like walk to the snack bar, walk to the bar, walk to the dance floor, and bowl. And, yeah. And, uh, and it's, it's totally real. And there's, and there's shooting games that I've been playing where you're jumping around like John Wick or whatever. And in terms of like not being a couch potato, my arms, my legs, everything is sore because of how realistic and how much this thing gets you moving around. And the reason why I talk about this in addition to the fact that since I've gotten one of these, I can't shut the hell up about it and I'm annoying everybody I care about, is I'm excited for the potential of VR for indie creators. Yes. There's, I mean, I've it, heard some fun stuff, yeah. ideas that I think would be really cool. Mm -hmm. Seen a lot of virtual concerts. Which have been pretty cool. Yep. Um, you, you know, we're actually I'm I'm sitting in what like feel what is like a virtual movie theater. We're all watching a, a show together. They have 3D concerts, which are cool. Mm -hmm. And you know, there's platforms like Big Screen where, in theory, we could actually do a we could actually stream an episode of Break the Business from Twitch into Big Screen, and people can watch it in Oculus, like standing next to their friends, like talking to people in VR while watching our show and musicians can do concerts in VR. They can mm -hmm. do events in VR. There's, I mean, virtual house concerts, things like that. There's so much potential for this. And so we all need to be following it because we're not that far away. I think from this existing in every person's house, like everybody's yeah, going to have a VR device. And it's a way to interact with people. Yeah. yeah. You're not isolating. Like a lot of people say is bad about technology or, you know, we're getting sucked into this thing, but with that kind of a platform, you have the ability to interact with real people, to get to know them, to hear people's opinions you weren't expecting, to you know do all those things we do when we interact in person. Being able to do that virtually opens doors for a lot of people who don't have access to things, and I think that's really cool. It, it, yeah, because, especially because like in the indie music space, a lot of the way that we are consuming artists and, and concerts virtually is very isolating, right? You're alone in your house. Maybe right. you're connecting to a Discord server so you can talk to people. Maybe you're using Twitch chat like the people who are w watching this program now on Twitch. Everybody. Hey, everybody. But uh, with VR, like, it's a lot more like you feel like you're at a concert with your friends because, like, you're sitting there next to them. You can turn to your left and see one of your friends. You can turn to your right and see another one of your friends in VR. You can high-five them. You can hug them. It's... You know, it replicates a lot of what people love about actual physical concerts at live venues. But now as an indie creator, because of the worldwide reach of VR, you could have that kind of concert event from wherever you live and have a worldwide audience. There's so much potential. I encourage yeah. indie creators to follow this, see where it goes, and, uh, you know, kudos to... To Facebook, Reality Labs, and uh, PlayStation, and, and all the different tech companies that are exploring this space and see the potential in it. So, so great. Love it. Definitely excited to see where that goes. That's going to be fun to watch. Yeah. Well, speaking of platforms, Lauren, that have been uh, in the news lately, 
and have uh, done some things that are, are certainly having an effect on indie creators and particularly their livelihoods and particularly not losing their audience. We've been talking a lot about Twitch lately on this platform. It is a very popular platform with indie creators. We're on Twitch right now. And a lot of musicians use this platform. And a lot of musicians lately have been expressing a lot of stress about the DMCA on Twitch, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, because a lot of musicians on Twitch are covering songs, are performing other people's material. Maybe they're streaming video games and there's music playing in the background or anything in between. And they are afraid of copyright holders sending takedown requests to Twitch and their and you know their materials getting taken down and none of the people that are doing covers you know they're not trying to violate the law Twitch is telling you know Twitch is kind of giving a lot of mixed signals about what's okay and what's not okay in terms of covers and not covers and what's okay on streaming versus what's okay on VODs that you release later and it's really annoying and cumbersome and complicated for indie creators especially because they don't have backgrounds in copyright law I have a background in copyright law, and I find this stuff confusing. And for a lot of indie creators, it is a, it's, it's a life-or-death scenario because if you find yourself on the wrong side of one of these DMCA takedowns and you, hit, and you get three strikes, you're out. They will cancel mm-hmm. your account, which is devastating. That's the end of your livelihood because you don't just lose your account. You lose all the followers you had. You lose all the interactions, all the it, subscriptions. Yeah. And, and people were saying that it wasn't even justified sometimes, like that there were glitches in the program, they were getting flagged for things that weren't right, and I don't know if there was any kind of appeal process or anything, so they were just losing things. There is an appeal process, but it's it's really cumbersome. Like, for example, one of the things that's really annoying is a lot of the DMCA appeals on Twitch up until now you had to do over email. A lot of back and, back and forth emails. So a lot of creators on Twitch are like, if Twitch is the one that's sending this stuff, why can't I manage my copyright disputes on the Twitch platform? Why isn't there a mechanism for me to go into Twitch, get a notification, and to do it on the platform instead of doing email? Especially these younger artists, they don't even use email anymore. I have certain email accounts that I never check. So that can be uh, really frustrating. And the other thing that artists have been complaining about on Twitch is for a long time, the three strikes and you're out rule the strikes never go away. And so you could have a copyright strike from five years ago, and since then you've straightened up and flown right, you've learned the ways, and then maybe you ran into some bad luck and you get a copyright strike again. They're going to count that five-year-ago strike against you. And so artists are like, look, there needs to be some kind of, you know, like probation period or something. Reward for good behavior. That's right. (laughs) You know, like give me some time served or something. I'm a good Twitch (laughs) citizen now. Like make that strike go away. Put me back at zero again. And so to some extent, Twitch has heard what these creators are saying. And on, uh, I think this was two days ago. It was quite recently. Twitch put out, sent an email to all of its Twitch users indicating that they are up updating their copyright policies regarding DMCA takedowns to provide more clarity in this space for them. And among the reforms that they are talking about is one, to, uh, removing the, you know, creating a procedure where you can get strikes taken off your record. Uh, what, what Twitch is saying here is that a strike is not permanent and Twitch can remove your strike if they deem that an account holder is not engaged in repeat infringement. So on the one hand, that's really good because it allows for strikes to come off your ledger. On the other hand, a lot of creators are still annoyed because they're like, well, what does that mean? What does it mean that Twitch goes into my account and deems that I'm not a repeat, a repeat infringer? Why can't it just be a set period of time? Like if you don't have a, if you don't have another strike for six months, then it goes away again. Something like that. Why can't Twitch do that, and that's and that's a legitimate concern as far as I'm concerned. But one thing that Twitch did do that I I just I'm unequivocally a fan of is now Twitch is going to create a dashboard where you can manage your copyright disputes right on the Twitch platform. If you get a copyright dispute, you can handle it in the platform. You don't have to do the email back and forth, which is really frustrating for people. And here's the other big one where a lot of artists get in trouble. As I said before, Lauren, the there is a huge difference in terms of copyright and DMCA for creators who are doing live streamed videos like we're doing right now on Twitch versus artists who put out the video on demand later. 
And I'm not going to go into the annoying, stupid copyright doctrine as to why this is the case, but take it on faith that if you do cover songs on Twitch as a live stream that goes out live, the general consensus in the law and in the entertainment industry is that that's going to be treated more favorably in terms of your copyright violation than if you make that video, that same video available later as a video on demand. Like, it's, it's, you're, you're getting less trouble in the copyright space by covering songs live on Twitch than you do making that same video available later. The problem is, a lot, one, a lot of artists don't know that, and understandably right. so. And two, Twitch by default makes your videos that you just streamed available later. And so an artist has a pretty legitimate gripe when they say, well, I didn't, you know, I don't, you know, I, I don't know if uh, putting a video later is going to get me in trouble. I just make the video and then you made the video available later, Twitch. And now I'm in right. trouble. Like, as far as I'm concerned, it's the same thing. I'm just making a video. And so now Twitch is going to create a setup where you could actually create by default to not have your streams published as videos on demand later. And that way, creators can avoid that thing. And one of the things that, that they mentioned in the letter that I think is a really good idea is you can actually change the setting by category. So let's say you are a Twitch creator that does videos in the music channel where you're doing your cover songs, but you also do stuff in the just chatting section where it's just, I'm going to sit on my couch and talk to my fans. Those two situations have very different copyright risks, right? If you are in the, in the music channel, you're likely covering songs, which could right. have some copyright issues. More likely, if you're in the just chatting channel, you're just chatting. You're talking. You don't have any music playing. And so you might want to have a different setup in terms of VODs uh, automatically publishing or not. So what I think a lot oh. of creators might want to do is if you publish in multiple categories, you might want to adjust your Twitch settings where for your music category videos... Make it by default where it does not turn your stream into a video on demand, but then for just chatting, you can make those videos available as a video on demand by default as long as you don't have any music playing in your videos. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Now, do you, can, do you have the ability in Twitch to set different videos separately, or do you have to change it in your account each time you start recording a video? Uh, you, can, you, you can change the settings after the video is over. Oh, okay. So, but, but now but when you have but, like an auto default, you can't set different auto defaults for like different styles of stream or like your scheduled ones. For a lot of the streams that I'll do, for example, um, sometimes I'll do a this hat. Like generally, I make all of my my podcasts available as VODs on Twitch because I'm not put I'm not playing copyrighted music that I don't have permission to play on the show. We don't do cover songs here. Nobody wants to hear me do a cover song, but. For example, when I stream MLB The Show uh, during the week, sometimes I have a stream that just goes terribly. Like, <laughs> I, I had a stream a couple weeks ago, Lauren, where uh, the, the Xbox just crashed, like, in the fifth inning of the game. And, nice. and then so I was like, well, I guess I have nothing to stream anymore. Bye, everybody. And obviously— You didn't even talk to him? <laughs> fine. Oh, I, I, I thought about it for a second. I was like, maybe just I'll just— put your head down and walk but away. By then, like— the people that were watching just sort of like scattered away and, you know, felt sorry for me and left. And, and so obviously I didn't want to make that video available to be seen later. So I went into the Twitch settings after the fact and I unpublished that VOD because I didn't want, I didn't want any evidence of that uh, terrible, terrible series of events to ever be seen again. And artists can do that. And then you tell your entire audience about it. And then I, In and case then I, they didn't know, now right. they know. And I could have gotten away with it if I kept my mouth shut instead of completely <laughs> recounting the story on Twitch and Sirius XM Radio and on my podcast. Now, as a question from an audience member, which I don't know, but do you know how the DMCA applies on YouTube? Uh, the answer is the DMCA applies on all of these internet platforms. The... Uh -huh. Whether it's Facebook, whether it's YouTube, whether it's uh, Twitch, any platform on the web that is hosting third-party copyrighted content is going to rely on the DMCA. By the way, the DMCA, that doesn't exist to protect you indie creators like you and me and the other artists out there. The DMCA exists to protect the tech platforms. The whole basis <laughs> behind the Digital Millennium Copyright Act is when YouTube and all these platforms got invented... They were really afraid that when all these third parties were posting stuff on YouTube, 
YouTube was afraid of getting sued. You know, somebody posts a video on YouTube of somebody else's copyrighted material, and the copyright holder says, well, I'm going to sue that creator, obviously, but they don't have any money. I'm going to sue YouTube because they have money, and you're secondarily liable by hosting this content. Obviously, the tech platforms don't like that. If, if these tech platforms were secondarily liable for all the infringing unauthorized material on their websites, they would all go out of business. So they lobbied Congress back in the 90s, and we have the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, which says that platforms like YouTube, like Facebook, like Twitch, are not liable for the third-party content posted by others on their platform in terms of copyright infringement as long as they have this notice and takedown procedure where if a copyright holder goes on Twitch and says, hey, that person's using my copyrighted material, you can send a notice to Twitch, and Twitch then will, you know, review it and delete either delete the content or if the artist says, oh, no, I actually have the rights to use it. But that notice and takedown procedure that all these different platforms have is because they are required to have it under the law so that they can keep this protection from liability, this immunity from liability, if you will. So, yeah, DMCA applies on all these platforms, Facebook, YouTube. Okay, so just to clarify for me, um, basically the platforms are not going to be responsible for anything that is created so long as they fund and maintain some kind of protocol to regulate it. The law goes into detail about what the note, what the notice and takedown procedure has to be like. There, there's all sorts of requirements. You have to make sure that there's a contact person. There has to there's a there's very specific procedures. As long as the tech platforms follow them, uh, they can avoid liability here. So yeah, to, so to go back to the, the listener's question, things like mashups and DJ sets, all of that stuff. Yeah, you know, YouTube could potentially take down those videos if they get a complaint uh, from a from a if they get notice from a copyright holder in the same way that this is happening on Twitch. And by the way, I would say of all the platforms, YouTube probably gets the most DMCA takedown requests because there's so much infringing stuff oh, on YouTube. Uh, it's it's completely everybody makes insane. a video, puts music behind it, or you know, sings covers, whatever so, it is. Yeah, lots so of. It. Be careful with that stuff, indie artists. I mean, like. Seriously, seriously, because you can, I mean, you can get your account shut down and a lot, and for a lot of you creators, there's a lot of money in those accounts because you have subscriptions there, you have, uh, you know, contacts and things like that. That's where all your fans are. So, you know, be responsible with your copyrights, take these copyright strikes seriously. And if you ever have any questions about what's okay and what's not okay, what I can put on YouTube, what I can't put on YouTube, shoot us an email, breakthebusiness at gmail.com. Maybe we'll make a topic about it. We've done some shows about this in the past, but always happy to talk more about it sooner. Before we bring Tommy Stalkneck on to talk about uh, e-commerce platforms, I want to talk about the article that I read in Rolling Stone that makes me really want to talk to Tommy Stalkneck because his platform, Single Music, is all about helping creators market to their, their fans directly, direct-to-consumer models. And that kind of model is super important right now, Lauren, because mm-hmm. uh, we exist in this space where a lot of artists have to go through tech platforms to get to their fans. Platforms like Spotify, platforms like Patreon, platforms like Kickstarter. And I don't got any hate for those platforms. They serve a purpose, and a lot of creators have gotten very wealthy on those platforms. Especially in the last couple of years. Especially, they didn't have a lot of other options. Exactly right. They, they serve a need. But... For every creator that is making a great deal of money on those platforms, there are scores of creators that are making nothing. And if you are, if you as a creator are hedging all of your bets on I'm going to get big on Patreon, you're basically playing the lottery. And what I think Tommy Stalkneck is <laughs> going to talk about after the commercial break is why it's important to do a little bit of direct-to-consumer work in terms of selling your music, selling your merchandise, and building your fan base. Because uh, this article that came out in Rolling Stone, gotta love this title, quote by uh, Tim Ingham, the article's titled, The Rosy Creator Economy is Music's Biggest Lie. Oh, great. <laughs> yeah, you know. <laughs> he, he really he really got, he really just kind of waffled with it, you know, kind of took like a, he equivocated, he didn't take a hard position. Yeah, he did. Music's Biggest Lie, The Creator Economy. Yeah. And while I, you know, while I'm not as much of a doomsayer as Tim Ingham is on this position, he makes some really good points about how there is a huge 
haves and have-nots in the tech world. And the only people who are really making money in these platforms are the platforms themselves. Here's a stat for you, Lauren. Do you want to guess what percentage of creators on Spotify are making at least $50,000 a year on the platform? So percentage of creators that are making like a middle-class living, not even like super rich, just a middle-class living on Spotify, the percentage of creators. Zero? I mean, Is anybody making that much on the platform? <laughs> statistically, zero. So, oh, wow. I mean, like, I it, did it, not it, expect it, to be right there. It, well, because if, if you're rounding down, the answer okay. is 0%. Point, is it like one? 0.2% oh. of yeah, all that's, artists that's, on Spotify are making that's pretty more close than 50. To zero. Yeah, it's basically <laughs> zero. 499 out of every 500 artists on Spotify are making less than $50,000 on the platform. And so a lot of tech platforms, including Spotify, want to promote this idea that, you know, we're, we're, we're creating lots of successes in music. We're creating middle-class musicians who can pay their rent on Spotify. And that's just not happening. There is a very small group that is making the vast majority of the money on the platform. And there's a whole bunch of people not making very, very much at all. And that's unique to Spotify. I mean, that's, that's, that's happening with Spotify. That's happening with Patreon. There's a whole lot of people making a lot of money or, or very few people making a lot of money and a whole lot of people making nothing. And, and putting a lot of time in. And it's scary because, you know, the article begins by talking about how the number one in demand for career, like if you ask kids ages 6 to 17 – what they want to be when they grow up, it's online video creators. They said, Mm -hmm. according to this article, 75% of kids aged 6 to 17 want to be online video creators. It's the new, I want to be an NFL quarterback, I want to be a Major League Baseball player. They all want to be YouTubers now. And, Mm -hmm. but YouTube is a place where you know, seventy-five percent of that seventy-five percent, they're all not going to make money on it. Maybe a tiny fraction of the one percent are going to actually be able to make a living on YouTube, but it's something that all the kids want to do. And so the biggest lesson, I think, in this article is direct-to-consumer is going to matter as well. I think for sustained Mm -hmm. success in the music industry, it's important for indie creators to find a way to reach their fans directly because if you're going through a platform, you could get rich, but it's basically playing the lottery. You know, if you could be in that 0.2%. You could be that the the two out of, or the one out of 500 but it's a it's a tough game, and you got to be a business person about it, and you got to weigh out your time versus what it's bringing in, and look for other options if you're spending all of your time on something that's not bringing you in what you want it to. Yep. All right. Here's what I want to do next, here, Lauren. Okay. I see Tommy Stockneck waiting in the wings. Yeah. Very excited to talk to him after the break. Here's what, but uh, in addition to talking to t- Tommy after the break, what I also want to do, Lauren, I'm pretty excited about this. One of our favorite Break the Business co-hosts, Zach Sloan. Mm-hmm. We love Zach. Like, mm-hmm. nicest guy nicest guy in indie music, I, I'm convinced. So, last week, we got him to tell us that he has a new song out. Yes. And he was cool enough to send us a copy of it, Brunette in a Summer Dress. And so... After at some point in the commercial break, we're gonna we want to let's set aside some time. Let's uh let's mark it off to make sure we set aside some time to play Zach Sloan's song "Brunette in a Summer Dress" here on the show. Give him the uh, the much deserved. We get to pub premiere him. Oh, I don't Has know he been played before? That's a good question. I mean, it's definitely put it this way. It's definitely Not on the XM radio. It's definitely the Sirius XM premiere of the song, right? Ooh. So that's that's pretty sweet. We'll We're going to give him a round of applause. And that's right. So that's coming up after the break as well. So if you're a Zach Sloan fan, and frankly, you better be because he's the nicest human being if in the world. If you're not, you will be after his song. True enough. You're going to enjoy that. All right. Let's take a quick break. We got Tommy Stockneck from Single Music coming up next on Break the Business. Ryan Corella here. I hope you're enjoying the show, and I hope that you're getting a lot out of it. I do what I do because I care about creators like you. A lot. I've dedicated my career to helping creative professionals, entrepreneurs, and organizations move forward. I do it by hosting this program, and I'm also proud to do it in my legal practice. If you're a creative professional looking for solutions-oriented legal services to help you further your goals, I'd love to help. 
My firm RKPA does contracts, commercial law, copyright, trademark, and more. Visit rkpalaw.com to learn more. That's rkpalaw.com. Ryan A. Corella, PA, Miami, Florida. Streaming services for Break the Business provided by L.E.K. Entertainment. L.E.K. Entertainment is a full-service entertainment company offering everything from consultations to full-scale events and productions, including audio and video productions, voiceovers, staged theatrical productions, script and music development, and streaming services. For more information, visit lekentertainment.com. L.E.K. Entertainment wants to help you bring your story to life. Thanks for supporting Break the Business. If you have a question or topic that you want us to discuss, email us at breakthebusiness at gmail.com. You can follow the host, that's me, on Twitter at Ryan K-A-I-R, and you can follow the show at The BTB Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the show on Twitch, YouTube, and Facebook, and on all major podcast platforms. And now, let's get back to the show. Welcome back, everybody. Before we bring on our guest, Lauren, I wanted to ask you, did you see that the Emmy nominations are out this year? I didn't. I haven't seen who the nominees are. I heard that they were out. Well, I know you are a fan of The Crown, right? You've been getting into The Crown. I am. So oh, I, I love that show. I have the numbers here. They have been nominated for 25,000 Emmys. So that's oh, pretty exciting. Well, they're all well-deserved, <laughs> and I think they should win them all. How far along are you? Have you, are you, are you caught up to The Crown? Or you... I, I think so, unless there's a, a season out that I wasn't aware of. Well, it's has, possible. Has Princess Di showed up yet? I think so, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. Okay. Has, has Margaret... I haven't seen the new queen yet. Have we Have we started the season where there's a new actress playing the queen? Or no, not yet. Yeah, there's a new actress. Play- I mean, well, 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 what do you mean by new actress? Because we started off with, uh, with uh, the young uh, Queen Elizabeth, and then we got the older right. one. And so right. yeah, we're, on, we're on the second Queen Elizabeth. We don't have our third one yet. Okay, okay. But they've casted her, but they haven't released any of her right, stuff Right, I saw a thing on that, and I was like, but okay, that but, season hasn't come yet. Okay, so, we're good. Yeah. Back to the Emmys. Yeah, but no, yeah, The Crown is amazing. I'm with you They on got it. a whole bunch of nominations. They did. And here, here's the thing that's wild to me, okay? So you've seen Margaret Thatcher, right, on the show? Oh, yeah. Okay, do you know who the actress is who plays Margaret Thatcher? Um, I, the name is not coming well, in my head right now, but I, I did know at some point. Well, it's, it's Gillian Anderson and right. I didn't know it was Gillian Anderson right away. Gillian Anderson oh. is agent Scully from the X-Files and I didn't know it was Gillian Anderson because agent Scully disappears into that role. I mean, like I, I was watching her in the X-Files when I was a kid. She like just completely vanishes. Like what an amazing performance I mean, she earns the Emmy alone simply. I think she's up for best supporting actress or something like that. Just because, I mean, that I mean, the you range, became someone else. The yeah. range on Agent Scully to be freaking <laughs> Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> Poor thing, she's doing all this wonderful work, and she's always going to be Agent Scully in your head. <laughs> well, that's what makes it all the more impressive, right? Because there are some actors who play like a super iconic role, right? And then you mm-hmm. just can't imagine them as anyone else. And so it's an even bigger hurdle to take on a role like Margaret Thatcher. It's hard to play Margaret Thatcher under regular circumstances, right? Like (laughs) Meryl Streep did it because it's Meryl friggin' Streep. Yeah. And so it's a hard role to play. And it's even harder when the entire world is already trained to see you as just agent Mulder's partner. (laughs) So for her to like disappear into that role and me not even knowing it's Gillian Anderson until I looked it up is is so so incredible okay what- i really want to look into the director i i haven't done much research but i think that across the board in that show all of the performances are so thoroughly developed yes that you can tell that there's just it, you know it's not somebody playing themselves and phoning it in like these are really rich performances yeah i mean, just it so well acted it's 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 as close to a, a perfect piece of television as you're ever going to find and if you if you are looking for a new show to watch next, Lauren, have you seen Ted Lasso yet? 
I have not. Okay, that's the one you need to get into. That that one's up for best comedy series. It's not nearly as meaty as The Crown is. It, it's very much a comedy, but it's so, so good. It's Jason Sudeikis playing an American football coach who gets uh, hired by a British soccer team, a, mm-hmm. an English Premier League team, to be their coach, even though he knows nothing about soccer. And it's freaking hilarious and incredible and heartfelt, and it's so, so sweet, and you're going to love it. Okay. To the task at hand, we gotta uh, got to bring on our guest here. I'm excited to talk to him. He is the founder and CEO of Single Music, the first dedicated music app for the Shopify e-commerce platform. You can find out more about his work by visiting singlemusic.com. We are happy to welcome Tommy Stalknecht here on Break the Business. Hey, Tommy. How are you doing? Thank you for having me. Very, very excited to have you. Uh, as you are... Uh, Heard us ranting before the break. We've been talking a lot about the importance of direct-to-consumer interactions between creators and their fans and how important it is and how you have to try to distance yourself from these tech platforms, at least to some extent, if you want to build sustained success as a musician. So that's why we're grateful for the work that Single Music does to optimize creators' e-commerce platforms. We're going to talk about all that. We're going to have a conversation, Tommy. But first, uh, I know that you're a hockey fan. And last week we had a hockey fan on last week, uh, James Priester we from Rare Americans. We had a hockey Americans. player. We did. We had a hockey player. He was a, a pro <laughs> hockey player. And I want to keep the hockey talk going here. So you are a Nashville Predators fan, right? Because you're based out of Nashville. Go Preds. Uh, well, actually, I'm a Washington Capitals fan and a Preds fan, but more on the Washington side. Oh, okay. So it's the sort of thing like, did you like grow up in the D.C. area and then made your way down? Yeah. Or, you, or did you just like, uh, or have okay. you just been standing for Ovechkin? Because, you know. <laughs> No, I was born and raised in the D.C. area, like Alexandria, Virginia. So I was there for okay. the early years and couldn't let it go. Okay. All right. So, is. so look, it's a great musical. we're based down in South Florida here. So we're, we're a bunch of Panthers fans here. But can we all unite? I'm going to ask you the same question I asked James Priestner last, last week. Even though we have our different hockey allegiances, can we all unite behind the idea that the Stanley Cup champion Tampa Bay Lightning are a bunch of dirty cheaters that don't care about the salary cap? <laughs> Yes. yes, I have no problem with that. Yes, now, United! I will, I will give that, I find, I, I'm bittersweet on it because A, I hate the fact that they were able to pull it off, but B, they actually petitioned, to give them some credit, a few years ago, they petitioned the NHL when the Black, it happened to them because the Blackhawks did it, and nobody talked about it, and the Blackhawks didn't end up winning that year, so it wasn't as big of a deal. And so they told the NHL, said, hey, can we turn that into a rule to where you can't do that ever again? And the NHL just kind of brushed it aside. So they did it this year themselves, and then were $18 million above the cap and got the cup, obviously, two in a row. So it's kind of like... Yes, I hate them because they did it. I hate them because they're they used to be in my division. But more than anything else, it's kind of funny that they just went back, like kind of threw that one right back at the NHL. <laughs> so let me let me give some just very quick background on this uh, for Lauren, because I, uh, I don't I don't know. Because I'm Lauren... looking like I have no yeah. idea what they're so, talking about. <laughs> so here's what happened, Lauren. Okay, so the, the Tampa Bay Lightning they have this these these like really good players. Okay, and they got injured all year. And so their salaries didn't count in terms of the maximum salary cap that you have that all the teams have. And then they just magically get healed again right before the playoffs start. And the league lets them play, even though by them playing, the team goes way over the salary cap because the league rules allow you to do that. And so and they have twice as many good players to draw from at any given time. And they time. were cru- and they were crushed my Panthers in the first round. Yeah, it was very good. breaking well my done. heart. Well done. I I'm sorry I can't I can't hate on that. Well it, done. It's a gangster move. <laughs> and look, Tommy, you bring up a really good point there. I did not know that the Tampa Bay Lightning actually had fought against this and were rebuffed and then they were just like, "Well, fine, if you're going to allow it, then we're going to do it." Yeah. That's a that's a legitimate mitigating factor, but it's getting in the way of my blind hatred of the Tampa Bay Lightning. Yeah, no, so I, I will I don't like not him allow either, it. So don't worry about it. No, mm. I don't like him either. Very good. Okay, so before let, let's start with this. Before we get into your platform, let's talk about the thing that your platform optimizes, which is Shopify. What is Shopify, and how can indie creators in particular use it? So at its core, it's basically an, it's an e-commerce platform for any anyone, any creator, any business to be able to create an online store on. And it connects into a bunch of different places like Instagram and Facebook and all these different places for you to be able to sell uh, pretty much anything. So 
if most people don't understand that Shopify is actually second only to Amazon in terms of size of an e-commerce platform, but because where the way that Shopify works is that you're not going to Shopify to purchase the product, you're going to the business itself. They simply are the underlying technology to enable that business to be able to, to sell whatever they're selling. So because Shopify is a massive platform, millions of users on there, they have an app store that that anybody can use to extend their platform and nobody had created a solution for music and so that's what we sought out to do all right so cuz when i th- when i think of shopify i think of like people just selling physical goods and certainly artists mm-hmm. can sell physical merchandise but they're also selling music and things like that too so how have you seen musicians use shopify well do you have any examples of musicians where you're like man that person's really using the tech well and doing some cool stuff with what they're selling yeah, it's interesting because be, because Shopify is such a behind-the-scenes technology for these things that they don't get as much credit as I think that they're due for what they provide um, in terms of technology. So the vast majority of major artists that you could name, I, I can list tons and tons of them, are using Shopify behind the scenes. And that's everything from doing things like upselling their records when somebody buys a T-shirt. So they buy a t-shirt and says, hey, do you also want a copy of the digital record? Uh, running things like discount campaigns and automatic discounts and abandoned cart notifications and all of these things are either available built directly into Shopify itself or just available as apps in their app store. In addition to that, you can also just use that as kind of the centralized place for your commerce to where you can have obviously physical goods, but through things like single, you can have digital albums that report to the charts. You can have uh, it connected into places like Instagram and TikTok and Facebook. And they basically did a ton of extensions of having an inventory centralized place. It's, it's, It's called headless commerce is really what the idea is, is that you have an inventory in one place and you have all these different places that you can sell from. And that's where their biggest strength is. This enables artists to be able to take their content and sell it in as many places as possible while owning the vast majority of those pay, like of the sales. I like that. And I like the idea of Shopify kind of being behind the scenes and all of it, right? A lot of the other tech platforms that artists are utilizing to deliver things to their fans, whether it's Patreon, Kickstarter, Spotify, it's very much platform first, right? Like the artist mm-hmm. is sort of on the platform, but the platform's trademarks and branding features prominently everywhere. In this case, Shopify's like, hey, we just got your back. We're behind the scenes, but it's your website. It's your platform. It's you reaching out to your fans directly, and we're not an intermediary as much as we're a support system for you, which gets into this idea of really having effective direct-to-consumer sales. So let's talk a little bit more about what you were hitting on there about in terms of single music's role in this. All right, so an artist has a Shopify powered platform that's uh, allowing direct-to-consumer, direct-to-fan interactions. Talk a little bit more about what single music does to kind of optimize and supercharge a uh, artist's uh, Shopify-supported marketplace. So like I said before, I mean, the biggest thing that they're good at is physical products, and they know that that market very well between anything from cosmetics to selling t-shirts and stuff like that. So they have that market well understood. What they are self-admittedly not very great at is understanding what musicians need. And so where we came in to fill in the gaps was, okay, what are all of the things that musicians are choosing to take their content, their artwork, and go to all of these other places to, to either host that content, sell it, whatever. So We've gone kind of down the line between, okay, starting with music, and that was what we initially launched with, was how do we make it to where artists can sell music directly to their fans through their own storefront to where the fans are getting lossless audio, but it's also counting on the charts. And so that puts you at the same level as an iTunes. And so that way, if you go and buy from iTunes, when somebody purchases it, it, they're reporting those sales to Billboard. Well, we brought that concept directly into the artist's own storefront, but also baked in a lot of the automations around, okay, scheduling a release date or when an individual single should be released or when an instant grant should go out and having previews and album-only tracks and explicit tracks and all those kinds of things that artists are used to having in a major DSP. But again, it's the DSP that is typically the brand in front of that. What we are trying and to do is taking a big cut that. for all that stuff. Exactly. And so what we're trying to do is invert that. Well, it's two things. It's taking a big cut, but your fans are not your customer when they buy your music from Apple. Apple 
like they are Apple's customer. You are simply providing Apple with the content that they are able to sell. Because if you try to go to Apple and say, who was it in Tulsa that bought my, my album? They're not going to tell you. They don't know. Whereas when you sell it directly, you know exactly who bought it from you. You have to ship them the T-shirt if you need to. And so you know everything about that person. And over time, it becomes a much more valuable data set. So not only between the actual like having the product in there and, and being able to sell it directly and keep more of it, we wanted to solve the problem of, okay, why are they sending people in these places? And so that that's kind of the problems that we try to solve between music, video, and, and ultimately now in the data space. I love that last component that you spoke about in terms of mm. being able to pinpoint that person from Tulsa who bought my album because now I can actually create a relationship with that person and build them into one of my you know 1,000 true fans that you always hear spoke about, those people that are super fans that really invest in your career and using a platform like yours through a Shopify-powered marketplace can help you reach those fans. So do you have any just general advice for the creators out there about how they can turn a fan into a super fan? How do you get that person, once you identify who they are, or at least that they're in Tulsa, how do you begin <laughs> that process of making them part of your tribe? So I think what you're going to see more and more as time goes on, um, I'm going to kind of full circle it with the, even the privacy side of things. Privacy is obviously good, but the what's happening now is with Apple and, and even Google themselves locking down a lot of these platforms for things like advertising and social and not owning your audience and things like that. You can get locked out of who your fans are at any given moment. And if you don't know who they are specifically, you can't reward them for being your fan. And so you know that on the direct-to-consumer side of of things that if this person in Tulsa buys from me, then they are already a leg above somebody that has never purchased from me before or purchases from somebody else. And so you can go to them and, and we have a specific system to where you can say, okay, who in Tulsa, but the, you can go down to that place and say, who has spent the most money in this state, in this city. And at that point you can say this person in this state, like who's my top fan in Oklahoma. And you go there, this person has spent X amount of dollars. Hey, thank you. Just email that person as the band and just say thank you for personal touch. Like actually so, yeah, supporting mm -hmm. me. And it's as simple as that, where you can just say something is like it, it, compliments go a long way, right? Everybody always says that. And so you can just reaching out and being a human to somebody and saying, Thank you for supporting me. Next time I'm in town, I would love to meet you. That person, you've made their day. And then you have turned that person into a super fan. And then ultimately over time, when you're beginning as an independent artist, it's a snowball effect. So mm -hmm. you're going to have one artist, that one fan that's supporting you that much, then two in Tulsa. And then those fans are going to ultimately become your biggest advocates, basically brand ambassadors. And that's music has an a very big advantage amongst like an actual brand where you're, I'm not saying, Hey, go to target cause they're the best or whatever. It's yeah, this music. You have to check it out. This is awesome. And the more you're engaging with your fans, the more they're going to advocate for you. And then that creates a snowball effect and that's how you're going to grow an audience. I love that. And in terms of the, the different ways that artists can make money through direct to consumer through sales, is there a particular technique or, uh, best practice that you think indie creators are underutilizing where you want to see more creators do it because you think it's something that's effective? Is it the upselling that you spoke about before? There's a lot of different ways that you can drive that traffic. But So here's kind of the way that I try to equate it to people. The technology exists now to where most artists have a, a Squarespace site, right? If you converted that into something like a Shopify, and I know Squarespace has commerce, but it's not the same. It's not even remotely on the same level. But if you let's just say you put that over onto a Shopify site, and now you have a website that has your tour, that has all of that on there, but you can also begin to sell merchandise today without any money up front. You can also begin to sell your music today without any money up front to be able to do those things. And that technology exists now, and most artists don't realize that. The biggest thing that you're going to be able to see is like you have, let's just use the for instance of I, I have to wait to buy merchandise because I don't have the money. The quality isn't going to be as great. We can put that out right now. I have a lot of friends in the merch space and that would give me a ton of <laughs> crap for saying that. But you can do direct-to-garment printing through a myriad of different apps, all of different quality, and your margins are going to be razor thin but all you have to do is slap a good design on a T-shirt and start testing what is going to sell. 
And then once you see what designs are selling, then you get that screen printed and then you can get a limited quantity. And then, you know, okay, this one I'm going to sell through because I already tested that this design sells. And so the idea of in fans' minds that I need to wait to start selling merch, I need to wait to start collecting data, I need to start wait to find out what my fans like, that that's the mentality that we're trying to tell indies that they need to get away from. Mm. Because you can, every business when it comes to merchandising, they'll put, they buy stuff. There's people that are called merchandisers. They go and buy things and guess what is going to be the next seasonal thing that people are going to purchase. And then when it doesn't sell, they reiterate for the next season. And that's, what's created effectively fast fashion. And I'm not telling anybody to do that because that'll ultimately be your full-time job. But at the very least, you can test a couple of things. You've got two ideas. You don't know which one you want to sell. You don't have to wait. Just put them both up, find out which one sells, and then that's the one that you go and go to a merchandiser and, and get them screen printed and get better quality of. And you can just graduate your way into higher quality items and more and more merchandise and more and more fans. Even outside of the merchandise space, Tommy's insight there, Lauren, is just generally good career advice. I think a lot of Seriously. artists fall into like a paralysis by analysis trap where before they do anything, before they create something, before they launch something before they execute an idea they want to analyze it to that they want to think of every possible contingency and then the thing never gets done and you know so what what tommy i think kind of is talking about as well is just in general with your career sometimes the best way to start is just to start and you're not really going to know what the right thing to do is until you start putting things out there and you get some feedback and you tweak and you adjust and only then can you figure out if you're going to make the right decision. So don't feel like you have to plan a hundred percent of every single excruciating detail before something gets out there, test things out, get some feedback from the market. And don't yeah, I mean, let it, the perfect be the enemy of the good. Yes. Yeah. And look, it, it's, what, to get away from people that would say, okay, the quality might not be as good on those directed garments. It is increasing. It's getting better over time. It's not terrible. But the way that you to, to kind of rework it in your mind is if you're able to start – the first person that buys the first T-shirt from you is a big fan of yours. And, and I, Well, the first couple is going to be your family and your friends. But the first person that you don't know that buys one from you is going to be a big fan of yours. And, and the reason why they're your fan is because of your music. Now, if you continue to do that, you grow over time, that that person is not going to get upset because they got the print-on-demand version versus something like a screen-printed version that has a little bit deeper color or whatever in the future. Yeah. If anything, when you are become successful, then they're going to say, I've got the, I can prove that I have one of the first 10 t-shirts that he ever sold. And then that thing is going to be their biggest momentum like, to your career ever. Hell, it could be worth something someday. So the point is, is just like you're saying, it's and it, look, it comes kind of from the entrepreneur thing. We put stuff out all the time that is sometimes it's would argue incomplete. But the, the thing is, is you got to test things. You got to find out what's going to work and what people will respond to. And rather than just kind of wait and hope that you spend all of this time and then it just falls flat on your face and you got a closet full of T-shirts. You can find out more about our guest's work by visiting www.singlemusic.com. Our guest is Tommy Stalkneck, the founder and CEO of Single Music. Tommy, I've learned a lot from you, man. This has been great. I've enjoyed the hockey talk. I've, I've enjoyed uh, hearing the virtues of direct-to-consumer and hearing about the great stuff that Single Music is doing. Before we let you go, and we have a little bit of time left, but I want to get our last question in here. Do you have any last tips to share with the indie creators out there to help them move their careers forward? Don't uh, underestimate the power of sales versus streaming. Now, obviously, it can sound like I have a bias in that, but the reason why I created the service is because I know math. So the I'm not very good at math, but I, I know that it exists and I know the basics. But the, the biggest thing is that sales count more on the charts than streams. Roughly one sale counts about 3,500. It's an average. It depends on what it is between free and paid, but roughly 3,500 times one individual stream. We've seen artists that have used our service to report 700 albums, and they hit number one on the reggae chart combined with what they did on streaming. We've seen people that have gotten multiple number ones. Peter Hollins is a fantastic example. He's a YouTuber. He does covers. He sells a million CDs, like all... he. Millions of exaggerating. He sells a lot of CDs, but he's charted twice, number one, on, I think, the classical charts. because, And he's attributed to say, look, I would have never thought to even make these things count 
And then now he can say he's a twice number one artist. And regardless of what people think about the charts in different ways, is that when you walk into a place and you have, hey, can you book me for this show? And one of them's a, n a number one artist versus another one that they've never heard of before and they don't have an accolade that they can put out there, that does help to, on different aspects of your business. That's the purpose of what Billboard was supposed to do. Man, absolutely. That's so terrific. Tommy, this has been a pleasure. Please don't be a stranger. We'd love to have you on again real soon. Thank you very much for having me. All right. Thank you. Tommy, Stognecked, everybody. Man, I feel smarter already. Okay. <laughs> we got a few minutes left, Lauren. I want to have the world bask in the greatness that is our Break the Business co host, Zach Sloan. So let us close out the show this week before we play our uh, stock music theme song. <laughs> let's, uh, let's go ahead and play Zach Sloan's latest single, Brunette in a Summer Dress, here on Break the Business.
All right, that was Brunette in a Summer Dress by our co-host Zach Sloan here on Break the Business. Love that guy. Check him out at ZachSloan.com. Our thanks to you, Lauren and L.E.K. Entertainment, for making this all possible. Our thanks to Tommy Stalkneck from Single Music for being our guest this week. And my thanks to all of you for checking out Break the Business. Thank you so, so much. We will see you next week on the program. Bye.